for joining us for Woke Moments, a conversation on issues and hot topics impacting young generations. My name is Janet Kelly, and I am the Executive Director of Sanctuary of Hope, as well as your host. So now let's jump into a moment of awakening. Woke Moments. Good Sunday, good Sunday dinner, good Sunday day, Facebook family. We're welcoming you today to a very important Woke Moments podcast on curbing black suicide. My name is Janet Denise Kelly. I am the executive director of Sanctuary of Hope, and I am the host today of today's discussion. Um, Black suicide is a, uh, a topic that's not talked about much within our community. It's not even talked about much within our kind of mental health fields. And right now, we know that black suicide is a mental health crisis of our times. And so for this Woke Moments podcast, we want to, we really want to focus on, on cultural approaches of dealing with and addressing uh, Black suicide. We also want to talk about interventions that work and interventions that we know that will help address the increase in Black suicide. And also, we want to talk about grief loss support, especially for those who have lost loved ones to Black suicide. But also, we want to tie into to today's discussion a talk about the compounding effects of the pandemic and Black suicide. And so we have some amazing guests some amazing thought leaders who are a part of this work that's, that's happening right now to increase awareness, to increase advocacy, but also to provide information about what's really happening within our Black communities around Black suicide. And so I want to welcome Gail White Biggers, Michael Gunn. Michael, if I pronounce your last name wrong, Correct me. <laughs> and uh, Candy Lewis from, from the Positive Results Corporation. And so before we kind of get into this deep dive and deep discussion, I do want to save space for individuals who may have experienced loss associated with suicide. And I want to ask that, you know, if there's anything that we talk about that's triggering, that you check in and, and, and you connect with someone too to help support you as we get into this dialogue and discussion. So first, um, I'm gonna ask to introduce herself, Ms. Gail White. Hi, hello everyone. It is it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am Gail White Biggers, and I am a licensed marriage family therapist, and I have been in this field for over a decade. My work started working for a faith-based organization for about 14 years, and I was working there as an administrator, and I fell in love 
with the process of taking those crisis calls that came in from the parishioners to the uh, pastoral leaders. And it started there, some would say it started before then, but I have just grown and evolved in my passion and love for this field. I have worked with countless um, diverse populations from those who have been survivors of human trafficking, uh, labor trafficking, and those who are struggling on a college campus, those in foster care, exiting foster care. And currently, I'm working now for Sanctuary of Hope as the clinician there, and I'm working with transitional age youth who are transitioning out of homelessness or who are still homeless. So this is my passion. It has been my desire for many years. I was born and raised in Watts, California. Woohoo! there's anybody from Watts out there? Yes, yes. Um, so just growing up there in that city, I mean, I just developed um, a real understanding that there are some deep needs in our community. And um, it started there too. And so here I am now. Thank you. Thank you. And next we have Candy Lewis, the executive director, CEO, and founder of the Positive Results Center. Yes. Anna, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. And I'm excited to be here with our guests, with Michael and with Gail. Uh, but let me just first start, as you said, there's gonna be some triggers in this conversation and people should be aware because violence happens um, it, it begins in the womb. And so I am Candy Lewis and Positive Results Center addresses trauma from a cultural and age perspective. We specialize in teen dating, violence, sexual assault and bullying. And I am a suicide awareness and prevention expert. So we're gonna have this conversation and it's critical. I wanna thank you, Janet, for just having this conversation because you have no idea how many people, children, all the way to seniors are impacted by suicide. Great. And then Michael? Yes. Michael, and, and Michael represents the National Association of Black Social Workers. Yes, yes. Among other hats that I wear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> greetings and salutations, family. Um, I'm just I'm just glad to be be part of this uh, discussion. I'm you know when Janet invited me to, to be part of this this panel. I you know uh, I can say yes enough. Uh, but yeah, I um, as part of my background. I'm a 25 year plus um, <clears throat> your social worker the Los Angeles County uh, Department of Children and Family Services. Um, and I transitioned from there back in September of 2019. Um, as you're aware, you know, we all have shelf lives. So I uh, felt it was just time to transition and to start um, something from home that can benefit the community. And so right now I'm, I'm, I'm in transition and formation, forming a, a consulting uh, type of entity that can, um, kind of center on culturally relevant services for our foster youth as you know, uh, whether they institutionalized or in a, on a family setting. I'm also the local chapter president of Association of Black Social Workers, and I'm also a board member of the national. So uh, with that said, um, and I'll discuss that throughout the course of our, our uh, podcast, but I've, I've, I can at least say 90% of that I've seen it, heard it, pretty much experience it all when it comes to our youth, especially when it comes to suicide. And so, um, you know, 
irregardless, uh, we stay grounded in what we're passionate about. So whether I'm with uh, a private or public entity, uh, there's still work for me to do and it's still work to be done. So thank you. Great, thank you so much, Mike, for sharing that. Uh, in, in order to kind of get us started and to put this discussion into context, and, and when I say put this discussion into context, we're gonna talk about it from a very intergenerational approach because we're gonna be talking about black youth suicide, black adult suicide, even black senior suicide. But one of the um, major issues that we know are right now around black suicide is that one, we have been disproportionately affected by it from a mental wellness standpoint of it. And we also know that we have a lack of professionals that are within the realm of mental wellness, mental well-being, um, that can be part of kind of the interventions to kind of get help and understand what's happening among uh, black the black suicide rates. But also right now we're seeing that there's a kind of a really huge spike and increase in black suicide. So what is that all about? I mean, we're here, we're talking about it, but what is this really about? Who would like to weigh in first? I, no, I think we all would, but I have no problem uh, weighing in on it. So black suicide is showing up in so many different uh, forms and facets. And right now there's no one particular thing that is really um, we're looking at. So we, we are looking at the fact that we're in COVID-19 and that is a pandemic. And because of that, um, people are isolated into their homes. They don't have an opportunity to see their loved ones. So if we're talking about seniors, especially seniors, they're feeling especially isolated and um, disconnected from the community. And we know that the older we get, we are looking for um, our family and our support. And if I don't have that, and I'm isolated away from everyone else, the four walls get to coming in on you very quickly. Um, and then if we're talking about um, middle-aged people, we've lost jobs, we've lost homes, we've lost loved ones. And not only do we lose loved ones, but we've lost loved ones that we talked to two days ago that we didn't have benefit of saying goodbye to or holding and hugging them and kissing them, or even giving them a proper burial. And then last but not least for youth, there's so many different reasons why kids are, are killing themselves. Um, bullying. Bullying has been a long, 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 long drawn out problem that people are not taking seriously. And so um, kids, it's a shame that I, I have to say that I'm gonna think maybe in the last four years, we've started saying things like kids and suicide in the same sentence, where this was not something that we normally used to say. So isolation, depression, um, anxiety, being bullied, uh, being sexually assaulted, being tormented, being separated from families, those are a lot of things. 
So I'm gonna leave it now for uh, Michael and Gail to jump in. You have Michael? the floor. You have the floor, Gail. Okay, Michael. Yeah, that was great, Candy. I mean, you hit on uh, mostly all of it, right? So that was really great response to. Um, I could add to that as well. I am. We look about the the stats since like the 1980s, and you look at the CDC reports from then until now. I mean, the the increase, the rate is unbelievable. Um, it has just multiplied significantly. And like Candy shared, you know, working in this field too, sometimes you just don't have a perfect picture. Sometimes you don't just have a perfect sign. There's no, sometimes there's no external behaviors. Um, so it is so important for us to be able to get into that internal working of individuals. Now, I know that we're trained as service providers to do this, but for those out there who are parents and caregivers and aunties and uncles, it is it's so important for us to form genuine, authentic relationships with those we love. And, you know, I'm learning too. I'm raising my nephew. He is 18 years old now. Well, he taught him when he was eight years old. I'm looking at the, the changes even from him being in the second grade and checking in on him and his friends. So even learning how to empower him to recognize even the signs of his peers. So I hear him sometime in the room, you know, trying to stabilize crisis, you know, again, we have to take other necessary steps to make sure that these other youth are safe. But when we think about too, I'm going to add something to we talk about this intergenerational approach. Um, I, my, most of my life experience has been working, living, um, I'm sorry, attending a mono-ethnic church, so a predominantly black church. And I know that, you know, just being in mental health now, learning about the differences between the, the praise and worship of one who is rejoicing on that front row, those mothers, and then learning the, the sounds of moans of older women who are in pain. And so right. now it's like, wow. That sounds like rejoicing, but then I hear this other sound that sounds like someone has some unresolved pain, but it's disguised as worship. You know, so um, I could go on and on on this, but let me tell you, I mean, there are, there are these compounding variables that are in the room, and um, we can get, I'm sure we'll go more into that too, but I want to leave some room for Michael as well. <laughs> Mike? All right, thank you, thank you. Thank you for establishing that platform for me. Well, um, let, let me start with, with my experience uh, with uh, DCFS. From a non-clinical standpoint, when, when you're dealing with a, a client or children or the family, there, there has to be, a, in terms, in, in context of, of, of suicide, um, there has to be a level of honesty and transparency, but, but you also have to, to have all five plus senses in place to at least identify and or engage uh, either the parent or the child. Now I have to admit, through my experience, I only maybe experienced two suicides within my caseload. And that um, was related to a father who wasn't in the household, but um, he couldn't shake the depression and the alcoholism and you know, things of that sort. But I knew he was suicidal, but I think through my intervention, I may have delayed it for about a year. But that meant I had to be more conscious about what that person was dealing with. 
And secondly, um, there was a, a youth, a teenager who, um, uh, man, she had multiple placements uh, and replacements. And, I, and I'm pretty sure, you know, everyone is aware what the effect that has. Then, you know, being conscious of who they are and the sexuality, you know, isolated and not feeling that she belonged. She um, actually um, had expired maybe after six months of me having the case. But what that did, that created a more deeper empathy for those that I, I had dealt with and those to be engaged with. But I think both Candy and uh, Gail hit on the fact that that there's got to be a level of understanding because a lot of times people express themselves, but are we using active listening? Secondly, mm-hmm. there has to be a level of contact and communication, especially with, with, with our, our, our seniors and maybe even relationship to, to our middle age folk. But what I did want to share um, before I end it, uh, there are two sisters that are, that are um, doing the work in terms of um, exploring and, and trying to come up with some solutions uh, for, for Black suicide. So uh, if you'll allow me, uh, Janet. Um, now, in the January uh, 17th edition of this year of the web-based journal, The Conversation, uh, Professor uh, Rita Walker of the University of Houston, mm-hmm. uh, as well director of the Culture, Risk, and Resilience Lab, had reported, you know, um, suicide rates among black youth are increasing. Well, we're, we're aware of that. Uh, in 2016 and 2018, national data revealed that among children between ages 5 and 11, uh, <clears throat> black children had the highest rate of suicide. For the years 2008-2012, 59 black youth died by suicide, up from 54 uh, in the year of 2003-2007. And so um, she's engaging um, folks, policymakers that have the power to uh, increase funding, access, and, you know, the whole effort in terms of equity and, 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 and inclusion is being done in her lab. Uh, we also have uh, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, and she's part of the CBC Foundation Task Force. And she actually... Um, had assisted in producing a 38-page report uh, called Ring the Alarm, The Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America. And so uh, at this point, that yielded uh, legislation called Pursuing Equity in Mental Health in 2019. So um, hopefully that's making its way through um, the Congress and then to the Senate, then Joe Biden's signature. The reason I wanted to share this is because uh, for the most part, most of my clients were females, uh, single moms, grandmothers, aunties, play mothers, extended family members. And there's, there's a gap in between the relational part, and I'm talking about black boys when it comes to reaching out and connecting with them beyond puberty. So. You know, I just kind of wanted to mention that and stop right there and allow um, both Candy and Gail to comment. And that's absolutely great because we are going to touch on the Congressional Black Caucus's report 
um, called Ring the Alarm, the Crisis of Black Youth, Youth Suicide in America, because it's definitely something that we need to champion from a racial equity lens to make sure that as we are, are talking about kind of service delivery, healthcare delivery, that the black voice is included in that. And, um, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit later on. But, uh, but I think one of the things that you hit on in sharing just kind of the story, Mike, of you working with um, the youth as a social worker was the issue around depression and trauma, right? And so, Gail, can you kind of explain to the audience what depression and what trauma is? Absolutely, I sure can. I wanted to add something to, to the last conversation we just had. Um, what I am noticing too, and this I think this is really important, it's um, a word that we should all keep in mind too when we think about this increase of the rate of suicide among Black people, um, is the word acceptability acceptability you know I, I suicide just the the idea of it has become so accepted um, it almost seems like it's just a normalized a normalized um, alternative to living and so when you talk to adults you talk to youth adolescents um, I've worked with so many who have experienced these depressive symptoms this feeling of hopelessness, this criteria when we look at depression. And a part of that comes this, this level of there are no other options but suicide. But I wanted just to remind the audience of that too, that it's increased too because it's now more acceptable. Okay, um, so depression, um, we look at a number of factors. Um, depression looks like a change in sleep patterns. It may be hypersomnia or insomnia. It may be more sleep or less sleep. We look at a change of energy. Um, this feeling of hopelessness, right? That there is no hope. Now that is one thing that I'm always assessing for. As service providers, we're always assessing about hope. Where's your level of hope? If a person feels hopeless and worthless, we're always making sure that we're assessing for suicidal thoughts or passive suicidal ideation, meaning that I'm not planning on killing myself, Miss Gail, but I'm thinking of, I'm just thinking about what it would be like if I just wasn't here. So we're always looking at that. So depression looks like that. It could be um, psychomotor agitation. It could be irritability for the kiddos. They can seem very angry. They're very upset. Yeah. But you know, they're they're probably depressed. This sense of sadness, right? Trauma has everything to do with um, something, this adverse experience happened to interrupt my normal, my normal stability, my, my normal um, way of being, it impairs functioning. I may have flashbacks of this situation. I may have perceived that I was going to die or witness someone dying. I may have dreams about it. It may be recurring intrusive thoughts. I may be avoiding a situation that triggers the trauma. So, you know, we, we definitely have a criteria that we're looking at. And as service providers, as caregivers, we're always looking for these changes in mood and behavior. Something happened. What happened? She was, you know, really excited and energetic woman, and now she doesn't want to come out the room. Right. Um, 
he's you know doing well but now he's getting giving getting rid of a lot of things now he's giving away a lot of things that appears to be gifts we want to watch that why is he giving away you know all of his possessions and belongings so there are so many things that you know that that can tell us that there was a concern when there's depressive symptoms and trauma right so candy i mean you do this work from a cultural standpoint about trauma right so what does trauma look like like what are these drivers of of trauma as it relates to black suicide wow that's a great question so trauma looks like a lot of different things to a lot of people so it looks like you being sexually assaulted as a child and then it pops back up again it um it looks like, and, and popping up by that, I mean that it could be a trigger later on, something happens to cause you to remember it, or maybe you were sexually assaulted again, because uh, unfortunately, it is true that there's a high percentage of people who, as children, who have been sexually assaulted that will be sexually assaulted again in their teens or as a young adult. Um, it also looks like being hungry or being abandoned. Abandonment is a real serious thing, especially with transitional age youth and, and kids in middle and high school, if they've been in foster care and their parents aren't around. Trauma also looks like not understanding what your sexuality is and being bullied about that. Um, and then trauma looks like being homeless or just having someone say something negative and nasty to you. I, I really want to kind of jump on the, uh, what Michael was talking about, that the U.S. Um, Center, for Center, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention stated that black teenage attempted suicides is up by 73%. Is anybody hearing us? 73%. Right. And by that, you think, okay, well, this has this is a person who may have trauma or may have experienced something, but it's actually just a regular kid. Um, about three years ago, we were working in a school. There were 25 young ladies in this class that I was working with. Of the 25, 23 of them had thought about committing suicide. Six had attempted suicide. And so their trauma was just the fact that they felt misunderstood, um, that they didn't identify with anyone, or maybe there was one or more parental figures out of the household that they were really concerned about um, the finances in their home. Kids, you know, you think like, okay, well, kids don't think about that. Kids are very intuitive when they see that, that there's some dysfunction that maybe mom or dad does, can't afford to pay bills. And so then they start taking on the responsibility emotionally. And that gets to be heavy along with the fact that, let's just talk about right now, the trauma looks like we're in three pandemics. We're in COVID-19, where I can't leave out of my house. If I do, I'm subject to getting... Um, ill or I'll bring it back home to my parents. And this is from a young person's perspective. I don't want to bring it back home to my mama, my daddy, or my granny 
and get them sick and then they die because now this is my responsibility. Or the fact that um, we're also living through the pandemic of domestic violence, especially as it relates to black youth, girls and boys that are not only being uh, physically, emotionally, sexually abused, or they're watching it, or they're watching their parents. And then the fact that here we are as Black people continuously being killed. So um, last summer, I had a young man that went through our Youth Leadership Academy, and he is a very strong, healthy, vibrant young man who called me one day in tears. And he said, I don't know if I'm gonna live to see tomorrow because I feel like I'm going to die. So if a police pulls me over, I'm just gonna go ahead and I'm gonna kill myself because I don't wanna to go to jail. And so he was so traumatized because he didn't know if he was gonna live or not, if he's going to make it through the next day, just being on the streets. That's great. And, I, and it's, and it's great that you mentioned that there's actually three pandemics, right? Mm -hmm. The pandemic that we're going through. Yes. The pandemic of the increased kind of domestic violence that's happening right now. Um, that's, I would say, uh, the pandemic has exacerbated, right? Oh, absolutely. And then um, the last one, repeat one more time. Black people being killed. Black people being killed, mm. right. which is a huge um, pandemic in itself and its contributions to yes. black suicide. So before we get into kind of those three pandemics, I would like for you three to discuss with the audience, and this is candid conversations, why are we as a black community not talking about black suicide like we should be? Mm, I, let me start off with that one. If the, if I can get deference from the, from the, my two uh, guests. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, it, it, this, this is it just, just in my own, own opinion, it's, it's, it's up there with all the other family secrets that we tend not to want to deal with. Um, you know, child molestation. Um, he not your father. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Grandfather was really, you know, it just it on and on. So it's it's and and the thing is, sometimes we can be clannish like other cultures and keep it. First of all, keep it within the family, mm -hmm. but it's almost like a mental health in certain like in certain cultures. Mental health is like an embarrassment. Yes. But but also sometimes we just don't want to deal with we wanna we wanna make sure that that same person um when they were young or just you know vibrant, you know, coming out of high school, college, sometimes we get locked into a, a time zone. And we don't wanna no, I'm it's cognitive dissonance. We we I see you now, but I'm referring back to what you used to be, and it's a conflict. And mm. we gotta, it ain't the person, we gotta resolve and kind of accept how things are because if we don't, and we really love and help, wanna help this person, it has to be done. So I think that's one piece, you know, that some, some families are just ill equipped with dealing with 
this because this is embarrassment, um, or just don't know how. And and like, okay, no, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Yeah. It'll be all right. Go, you know, go to the club. We'll get something to drink. Let's go out. Let's go on a trip. Right. Oh, you know. So I'll right. leave it. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. It, absolutely. I wanted to add this too. I saw a TikTok probably about a month or so ago. And I'll be honest with you, you know, it was it was a comical way of, you know, kind of really talking about the truth of black families. And it was a young man, he was laying in his bed. He was like, this is how depression is dealt with in my house. So he was laying in the bed, he had a pillow, and his mother came in and was like, boy, and he says, mom, I'm depressed. And she says, well, you better depress your way and wash some dishes. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. It, was, right. it was a comical TikTok, but it's like, you know what? There's some truth there. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we deal with it, it's like, it, it goes back to that generational thing. That stigma is still there. Now, I believe we're doing a, a lot better, a, a better job in our communities and advocating for mental health, but millennials, they, they are in therapy. They're not telling their family they're in therapy. Um, Generation Xers, they're in therapy. They're not telling their family they're in therapy. But there is still, I believe, a stigma that um, we carry in our families. Um, It comes up all the time. Big Mama's voice is still there. You ain't crazy, right? So that's one part of it. The second thing, too, is believability. I got to add this. I'm always trying to educate my non-Black colleagues about how important it is for our stories to be believed in sessions. And no one wants to feel like I have to convince you that I really had some traumas, right? So that's why a lot of times black people will call mental health services and say, is the therapist black? Is the psychiatrist black, right? Because they don't want to deal with, I have to convince you that something is going on. And these voices that I hear, you know, it's not schizophrenia, you know? It's something else going on inside of me, maybe a spiritual battle, right? But we have to be able to have a cultural competence to work through those things. So I think it's believability too, and it's still a thing that we have to work through. Can you hit Candy? the nail on the head? Um, let me just say this. Believability goes also back to the family because mm-hmm. very often we'll be like, that never happened. So especially with children who have been sexually assaulted, we have too many people who said, yo daddy, yo mama, yo granny, the pastor, the preacher, the teacher, old boy down the street, my next door neighbor, the babysitter, the coach, they didn't do that to you. And so these kids learn from a very early stage, okay, so whatever I say is not gonna be believed, so I'm not gonna say anything. So if I start feeling like, like I'm depressed, I'm, not, I'm gonna hold it in because if I say something, no one's gonna believe me or they're gonna shame me and blame me. So shaming and blaming is also another reason why people never talk about suicide. Mm-hmm. Because if I say that I'm thinking about killing myself, as you said, what, are you stupid? Because I know you're not crazy. I know you better get out of here with that nonsense. And then, Last but not least, I think a lot of times people don't talk about suicide is because of either fear or shame 
are also because they don't know how to talk about suicide. We've right. not made it. Um, We've not made it a comfortable conversation. As Gail said, we will say, you know, um, I know you're not crazy, but we've all had someone that we know, love, trust, or respect who has been, who has committed suicide. And then the system, whether it's the church or the family or whatever, won't even say that that person committed suicide. They will cover it all up because that is the big nasty secret in the room. So we have to learn how to identify that there is a problem without shaming or blaming people mm -hmm. because they don't feel good or because they're depressed or because someone has hurt them in a way that has really made them question who they are. And that also includes people Got to stop here. Got to pause for the cause. For people who, um, especially young people, who are questioning their sexuality, uh, whether they're questioning their sexuality or their gender, that people do not want to see them as who they are. And so if they show up as uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, queer, intersex, questioning, um, uh, and I forget the other AAs on that, um, you know, people will want to put them down or shame them or put them in the closet. And if you can't live your authentic self, it is hard to walk this world and not just be you or to be your authentic self and have everyone hate on you simply because of who you choose to love or how you identify. Right. And I Absolutely. think that's what you just said. Candy kind of encapsulates why um, there's such a huge, um, not only stigma, but the reasons, kind of reasons behind often why um, those who are on the verge or are experiencing kind of suicidal thoughts or are thinking about suicide or, or addressing other kind of mental um, health issues don't reach out or seek the help. But before I, I ask, going to a question, we have a question um, directly from Facebook. Um, since we're talking about, you know, why is it that we're just not connecting or engaging in um, seeking kind of like these mental well being services? In the Congressional um, Black Caucus report, um, one of the things that they discussed was motivation to seek out mental health services, right? So what should we be doing to increase that motivation to engage in those services? And if we can try to uh, talk about it in two minutes or less, because I think the question that we have from Facebook is really important to address. Gail? Sure. Okay, so I was thinking about the idea of like cultural dysfunction. We have some real cultural dysfunctions that we still have to deal with. And I know that it starts within the family systems. But as Michael said earlier, you know, sometimes families just, they're just not equipped. They just don't know how. So we do our best to continue that outreach 
to kind of evangelize the importance of reaching out and normalizing supportive services. Um, that cultural dysfunction is sometimes in our own homes, even within ourselves, we gotta be very careful how we compare our experiences with the younger generations. Um, yeah. Thinking about, I think about even like, I know we're, this is a, a platform about our community, but when I think about even like um, the Jewish culture, I think about those clients sometimes, they talk about how there is a, there's a shame, as Ken used the word shame, there is a shame to talk about the deep pain because you're hearing the family talk about, uh, you cannot experience pain because we went through the Holocaust. Right. So there is a part even in our own families, in our own language that we compare, we compare, you know, resiliency, you know, oh, you don't know struggle like we like we struggle. We don't know. You know, and so that that can cause those individuals to feel like, you know what, I feel ashamed to say I'm struggling and I don't have the strength inside. So that's one answer to that. Candy, then Mike. Janet, repeat the question for me, please. So in the Congressional Black Caucus report, they talked about motivation. Like what are going to be kind of some of the motivators around um, Black folks seeking and engaging in mental health services in order to address the issue of Black suicide? We need more Black therapists. We need a lot of uh, black therapists. We need a lot more men black therapists. We also need to really start as parents, start treating our boys um, that it's okay to cry. It's okay to have feelings. Um, and not just boys, and, but girls as well. We want people to stuff these feelings down. And so now once my feelings are all the way up to my head and I'm full, what am I supposed to do with them? And as Gil said earlier, you better carry your butt in that kitchen and wash those dishes. Calm your butt down. <laughs> and okay, so I'm mad and I'm pissed off. So I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not supposed to be mad and pissed off. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in there and wash those dishes and I'm going to talk mess under my breath and then I'm going to go get high and then I'm going to go and drink and I'm going to go and do something that I shouldn't be doing. And I'm not saying that the drinking um, or, out, or, or getting high is going to cause you to commit suicide. But if you are already depressed, adding substances to it, it will elevate your levels of depression. And so you have, you feel like, look, I might as well go ahead and do this because you don't feel like you have any other options. And so we really have to learn how to, we have to learn how to communicate and not only just communicate, but I don't remember if it was you, Gail or Janet who said it. Um, we have to learn how to communicate and listen. We have to listen, not to respond, but to listen to really, really, really hear. And don't just say because, well, you know, if I say this to you, then you feel like I'm trying to one up on you. No, I'm saying this because there is a concern and there's a problem. And I think that's really what we need to do. We have to learn how to listen and communicate. We have to give people space for their feelings we have to really be aware that there is a problem. And Gail, thank you so much for saying comparison because I hear far too many parents who um, they will hear about their kids 
talking about being bullied and they will be like, please, I got bullied when I was a kid. Yeah, I got bullied at school. But but let me tell you, parents, y'all tripping because a kid being bullied today does not equate to anything that you have ever experienced in your life. Because if I got bullied at school, I could go home and in my neighborhood, I wasn't getting bullied. I wasn't getting bullied at home. But first off, bullying starts at home. We are breeding our children for violence. I don't know a single person who could tell me that they have uh, met a parent, I mean, excuse me, that they have not been either to the show, the mall, the park, the street, driving down the street and watching somebody on the bus stop or somebody on the bus who has cussed out their kid, cussed them out like they were a grown person who burnt down their house. And so if I'm cussing out my kid, telling them they're a stupid mofo, they're no good, they ain't Mm -hmm. S-H-I-T. So my kid is going to walk around thinking that I'm not Mm S-H-I-T. And then they're going to get to that schoolhouse and they're going to have some kid that says, well, look at this stupid fool. And they're going to be bullied by that kid. And then because the parent is either too busy to show up or too Okay, it's candid conversations, don't give a damn, and won't show up. So now the school says, uh, if the parent doesn't show up, what do I care? So they don't do anything. Parent don't care, school don't care. Now that kid is being bullied at home, at school, in the community. This is a perfect setup for this child to commit suicide. And please don't add in the fact that maybe they have a parent that is in jail or that they don't have any food or that they're homeless or that they're queer or or they're questioning or that there's sexual abuse or violence also in the home. Wow. You gave us a whole lot to think about right there, Candy. And the thing is, Janet, is that that's what we are all working on every single day. It's, you know, know, people think it's like candy. So you're, you're dealing with domestic violence. I'm dealing with domestic violence, homelessness, drug Mm -hmm. abuse, alcoholism, abandonment, Mm -hmm. um, all of those things. There's no such thing as a thing. It's multiple things. It's multiple things. Right. Mm -hmm. Mike, do you have, um, quickly to weigh in on what we need to do to motivate yeah, well, let me let me start off. Let me start off with more of a, a macro um, uh, standpoint in relationship to the uh, pending legislation, the uh, Pursuing Mental Health Act of 2019, and, and I'll share some of the macro things we're trying to do: um, increase the amount of research related to mental health of Black youth and suicide through the National Institutes of Health. Um, to promote training of students, parents, teachers, and others. Staff members identifying screen signs of trauma, mental health, health disorders, and risk of suicide. That's being done. You know, Candy, Janet, Gail, you know, you gather on, on, on the front line. Uh, increased funding for National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, which says, you know, study mental health disparities, racial and ethnic groups. And then lastly, uh, prohibit funds from being used for conversion therapy, uh, which is interesting. Uh, you know, so pretty much at this point, bottom line is that it's increasing, and the gap is being being um, closed in terms of, of, of a white counterpart. But but interesting enough, um, what Candy mentioned, you know, when I was coming up, a different time, Generation X, seventy eight to sixty four. I mean, sixty four to seventy eight. <laughs> um, 
So bullying back then you got punked. That's what it that was called. Yeah, we got punked. punked. Yeah, you so got that's got same thing. Yeah. But you know, and 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 I, you know, I had the uh, the blessing two parent home, strong fathers, strong mother, and you know, yes. my mother, you know. She was like, you know, you, 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 uh, they hit you, <laughs> you hit them back. Don't come home crying, saying they beat you up. I'm gonna get you. That, mm-hmm. That's, you know, and, 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 and the reality is, is that my parents were old school. You know, they, they loved you. They ain't always say, now they do because they are grandkids. And, and I still, for the life of me, can't understand why they cut them slack and then cut us slack. I don't know. Just, it's just, <laughs> they got 14 and, Including my, my two, and it's like it's amazing. I just I'd be writing a book on that. But uh, we, you know, now we're all close. We have, you know, I'm originally from Indianapolis, but uh, we're really grown closer. And and I, and the, the reality is, what I found with my work, uh, you know, in, in in the field, no matter what happens or what that parent does to that child, that child never stops loving that parent. It never changes. And and the reality is is that despite that, I don't consider any child a throwaway child. Now you know recently you heard about the um, incident at uh, Wayfinders, which is which is unfortunate about the young brother being being killed. But but now that I'm not necessarily with the county, um, we had instances. Well, I worked in McLaren as well before close. And we had instances where, where, where children um, would, would try to escape, and then, but they wouldn't commit the suicide in the institution, which is interesting. But we just never had a plan after it closed. And I'm not going to get too much into that, but, mm-hmm. you know, that contributed to the children, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the sex trafficking, the drug use, you know, just the whole cycle of things where, okay, a social worker will pick me up and then I'll get something to eat, take a bath, boom, I'll hit it again. But 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 the, the mental health piece is real. And so the, the the key piece is that one effective effective mental health, meaning counseling, something to where it's the child can feel it and understand that, you know, wait a minute, I'm getting my needs met, but this person really gives a damn about me. Secondly, we have to kind of look at the fact that, you know, outside of homelessness, some of you have been homeless for five, six, seven years. They just, you know, we just finally captured and we got the story that it's a lot worse than we think it is. It, it's, the news is probably covering about 30, 40%. <laughs> it, it's, you know, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but there, there, there's some work for us to do. So, and then the second piece, which uh, Candy hit on is the fact that, um, you know, what we do, we do it all. I was, you know, I was a paralegal. I was, uh, uh, I was a BFF. I mean, it just, it just, when you, when you are in this, you, 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 you're, you're everything to that person and you can be that key or that link from everything. And so the reality is, is, you know, we can pray about it. We can talk about it. We have to be about it and be effective about it, which is being done. But, like Candy said, we need reinforcements. We need more black men. You know, there's, there's a shortage of black men in social work, uh, shortage of black men in, in, in counseling and therapy in, in schools. So, you know, that may be another uh, subject matter of content for Janet, but yeah. It is, but I think that'll be a subject all by itself. And so we have a question from the audience and 
one of the well we have two questions so one question is once we know someone is suicidal and they show signs signs i guess signs of of, of what we kind of just talked about signs of kind of uh i believe of kind of self-isolation or or tuning out um what should we do gail yeah, that's a great question. Um, I every everything that's been said today, it goes back to um, it goes back to the relational piece. It does. So with a the therapist, with a with a primary care physician, with um, auntie, with sister, with mother, the list goes on. Whatever role you find yourself in, it always goes back to relational. That person is going to only be with a counselor if they're in counseling for fifty minutes a week. So it's really important that, as Michael said earlier, that we we develop those close relationships so we can really see those changes. Now, someone identifies that I am, you know, I'm, I'm depressed or, you know, I'm just not wanting to come out of the room. You see that there's an increase in substance use, um, all of these different types of um, signs and warning signs. We have to develop a strong, competent voice to act directly. We cannot be afraid to ask directly. And we can learn that. There's books on it. You know, there's YouTube videos on it. You have to be able to ask and just say, I'm checking in on you, girl. I'm checking in on you. You know, how you doing? How are your thoughts? Right? Um, you know, has, has anything changed? I'm just concerned about you. So you can just use your concern, use your voice to ask directly. And then after that, if they say, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about it. And what I'm learning now, people are waiting for you to ask them. They want to know that they are visible, that you can see them. So just being known is so powerful, right? And after that, there are definitely steps that you take so you can refer them to counseling. If, it's, if they're in imminent danger, they're saying, I have a gun. I'm going to do it tonight, right? You want to call 911. LAPD, you want to call the smart team to come out, right? So there are there are definitely uh, definitely steps to take, but your relationship, oh my gosh, it is so important. You have to be able to verbally ask those questions. So what do you do for someone who may have tuned out or or doesn't seem to want to connect, right, around the issue of their own isolation? They've kind of stop talking and they're in their own space i mean what should what should our audience do instead of saying they've tuned out we're not connecting it is what it is i mean what should we do next well you know what if i may it, it's a technique i've used um putting myself in the in the client's position and imagine what if I had everything stripped from me, my, my sensibility, my sense of structure, my sense of home, love, where would I be at? What state of mind would I be in? You know, um, you know, isolated, rejected, maybe because of a substance abuse issue, maybe, um, you know, issue related to, to my sexuality. But, but the, the, the reality is, is that there, there, in order to, to help someone else, you have to be non-judgmental and level of transparency. You people, if they feel that you are are representing the, the man or the system, you, you first of all, you you you're not gonna get across anyway. 
Secondly, your narrative has to be a little bit different than what they've experienced. Right. Because they, they, they know, they look, look, I've picked up kids working overtime on the weekend and they, they know better than me. They know, know which one they want to go to the counselor, but they, and okay. But, but I, I'll usually have a conversation when I'm doing my assessment and I, and, and you know, I, I find out, you know, what are your hopes and dreams? What are your aspirations? Mm-hmm. What is it that, that, that you want to do with your life? Because I, I don't want to entertain the pathology to the point where they can't dream again and understand you, this is a hump. This is your life. And if you can navigate this, everything else in life would not necessarily be that much of an issue when it comes to dealing with certain problems. And lastly, I want to bring it back to the, to the, to the family. Um, a lot of times, you know, we have relatives and, and family and well, mainly relatives and, and, and whatnot, and even our own children that that kind of play possum. Well, they say they're gonna do something, and then you put it off. And and you know, some just we just miss it. Oh, that's just no. Somebody has to 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 be the adult and take lead. And like, look, you know, whether it's the the, the parent or relative, somebody who can kind of say, hey, this is a little bit different this time. And and I know that you know we 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 want to. We all think that, that everything's okay when we come together, you know, like for funerals or other family gatherings, unfortunately. You know, there's always this front, hey, everything's fine. And, you know, this, that, the, other. But the reality is, is that that's not always the case. And so that we definitely have to keep that in mind. Right. Candy, can you weigh in on this? And then we'll go to our next question. And then we're going to circle back to talk about the pandemic and suicide. Absolutely. So the question is, what can we do if we think someone is suicidal? Um, So we need to be more uh, observant and interactive. You know, um, especially during this time, it's really difficult. I'm going to just be honest, it's difficult to pay attention to somebody else when you're trying to figure out how you're going to, especially as a parent, how you're going to pay your bills. Uh, are you going to have a job this week? Are you getting the stimulus money? Uh, where are my kids? Um, where my man or where my woman or whatever the case is? And so we have to really take a moment and step back and pay attention to our babies um, as well as to ourselves. Because see, if I'm depressed, I'm not thinking about anybody else. So are you depressed? Where are you at emotionally? How can you help yourself and let's start looking at self-care and let's start being real about it. Um, And we have to acknowledge uh, and understand the experiences that everyone is dealing with right now. We can't downplay them. Um, We also have to provide some resources. So um, someone had asked, what are some of the resources I just put in Facebook, uh, several lists of different organizations that provide Uh, help and resources for people who are considering suicide. We also have to create alternatives and not punishment. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, my kid was talking about they're going to commit suicide. So I put them on punishment or I won't let them. What? I don't understand that. We have to really set up a, a safeguard or almost a wraparound of services that will 
that will help not only that child, but their family. Because right. there's a lot of dysfunction going on in that particular family for that child to be thinking about suicide because maybe they're not paying attention, again, to what the signs are. Um, and then also, I would suggest that everybody take a moment and start Googling um, what to do if your child is thinking about suicide or how to talk to your children about suicide. And I think that could help a lot because if you don't know, if you are, are unaware of how to have the conversation, then sometimes we just say, well, forget it. I don't really know what to say, so I'm not going to say anything because I don't, want, I don't want to make the situation worse. But guess what? Situation is not going away. It is going to, it's going to stay until they either attempt it or, or they commit it. Right. So Gail, this question is going to be for you. And then we're going to move kind of into the next discussion. So the next question is, how can we support and or advocate for our unsheltered black youth especially right now with the focus on single adults in the homeless system due to COVID, it seems our young adults' needs are not being addressed. Young adult needs are not being addressed. So unsheltered youth, so homeless youth, mm -hmm. how do we advocate for them? Is that what I heard? Yes. Okay, that's a, I mean, that's a it great says, question. It says, how can we support and or advocate for our, our unsheltered youth? I know. So that's a great question. And whoever you are out there, I don't know who you are, but you know what? I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure that you're a part of that process too, right? So there are so many organizations like Sanctuary of Hope. Um, there are other services throughout every county. I would say, you know, we definitely need to connect to those resources. We should have a referral list. We should have, you know, the ability to call someone and just say, you know, let's let's see if they have space for you to be connected to these services. Um, we don't ever we don't ever give false hope. We don't sell false hope and say this is what we can do. I can promise you this. If you work this program, you'll be here. But, you know, advocating looks like case management it looks like support it looks like uh calling them it looks like mental health utilization of mental health services it looks like being familiar with the resources in your community um being creative in how you reach out and help um so looking at churches if there are donation centers i mean we have to have a collaborative approach when it comes to those who are unsheltered, there's no one system in place that could do it all. You know, if I can just add to this too, I mean, I was thinking as we were talking about this, um, this, this lifespan approach, this lifespan approach to it. I mean, there are so many steps that we miss, you know, and that's what hurts me the most. It's like when you're talking to um, adults, you're talking to young people and you see that there are some missing pieces when they were, you know, seven years old and then, you know, and then middle school and then high school and then now they're homeless. You know, it's like there were so many steps that were missing. And so 
we have to be able to, 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 to go back. I know that I'm kind of like off the question a little bit, but I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> we have to find a way to go back into our primary user development and reach out and be there, there, and start that relational piece there. And that's where the empowerment starts. Right. So that we can decrease homelessness later. Right. So we're, we're past our hour, so we're, we're kind of, okay. <laughs> I think this conversation has gotten really, really good. And so what I, what I want to do right now is for the next um, 10 minutes or so, is focus on the pandemic, the uncertainty around it, and what interventions should we be thinking about right now as it relates to Black suicide? Everyone's quiet. Do I need to call on someone? <laughs> well, you know what, Janet? That, that's a serious question. What intervention should we be paying attention to or thinking about or creating for Black suicide? So the first thing is we have to really assess the needs of each person, especially are we talking about the... So let's back up. Are we talking about for children, for transitional age youth? No, for we're adults. talking about black suicide in general for all of our populations, right? Intergenerationally. Right. What should we be thinking about right now as far as interventions? I'm thinking we have to figure out what type of uh, wraparound services we could offer and how can we create um, maybe some kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of like a little checklist to say, if I'm dealing with this person, that these are some signs that might lead me to believe that they are contemplating suicide. You know, and then also really start trusting what your gut thinks. Um, if, if something leads you to believe that there is a problem, there's probably a problem. And we have to learn how to have the conversation uh, again, without shaming or blaming people or, or making them feel like we're going after them. How can we have a conversation but put our heart into it so that we're showing up in a respectful way, in a considerate way, and letting them know that truthfully, truthfully and honestly, I really do care about you. Because a lot of times people think, you don't give a dang about what I think. So you just over here, you just got this job and you're just trying to talk. And the reason we feel people feel like that is because they've been pushed around mm -hmm. from person to person, from group to group, to organization to organization. So it's almost like when you make a call to some place and they put you on hold and they transfer you like 20 times. Right. Can we set up a system so that when they hit a agency, they don't have to do 20 different referrals they don't have to do 20 different reports they're not being pushed around that it's almost like with the with the work that you and i do janet if i have a problem i have somebody in my office or on the phone and i'm going to put them on hold and i'm going to call you i'm going to call you and i'm going to find out what we need to do can you help and then instead of just sending them around the world let's set up a system so that we can support people right where they are. I shouldn't have to send someone who is thinking about suicide um, on the bus with no money on the other side of town 
to find another resource. Yep, shouldn't have to. Mike, and then we're gonna leave you, uh, leave you to add some closing remarks to that, Gail. Okay. Um, well, you know, um, Miss Candy kind of said it all, I think, and it just, fortunately, further, further compounds what's already there. Uh, in, in my own view, I, f I find myself, um, you know, since we're, we're more home-based, reaching out to folks that I haven't talked to in a while, those that I sense that are struggling, not to be intrusive, but just to, you know, sometimes, you know, texting can be okay, but it can be impersonal. I, something related to, to possible, you know, engagement intervention, I probably would, would defer on the texting or even the DM, I'd call and reach out. Um, in some cases, I've been known to, I'll pop up at your house, you know. Um, the, the reality is, it's not a concern. And I don't, if, if there's a reaction that's less than cordial, I don't take it personal, because I love, if you focus on what you're there, that, and that's just a, a level of transference that, that may happen anyway, because if a person not comfortable with sharing that, then mm -hmm. there's some defense mechanisms that take place. But I think, Right. This too shall pass. I think you know we as a people and as 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 in our DNA, we we have so much resiliency that that I'm always you know half full. I don't I don't engage the pathology more, no no more than an acknowledgement. I think that moving forward, I think those who've been there and done that when you know we've had you know our ancestors dealt with black codes, Jim Crow. You know, we, we've already mentioned what some of the pandemics are, racism and institutional rape. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this in the same context, but I think we need more um, love involved when we're dealing with it to education because um, that's not the only issue going on, but that's something that we have to un unbury and unpack. We can't, get, can't be put to the side anymore, uh, you know, um, due, to, due to lack of knowledge or embarrassment, but I think with lastly with, with COVID, I think um, it's a two-edged sword. It, it, it's a downer, but also brings opportunity for healing as well in ways that people uh, don't imagine all the time, so. Absolutely, amen to, amen to both. Yes, um, if I could just add one more point to, you know, I will be very honest with you. Um, I have been burdened, um, you know, since 2020. Um, you work with clients, family, friends, you know, you're working in the field and then, you know, you have your relationships outside of your professional life and the burden. We're in this field because we're empaths. We have empathy. We care. And so to to really face the realities of this pandemic, um, I've, I've, I've noticed that when you are honest about how it affects all of us universally in a very different way, you know, it, it certainly does help and heal. One thing about the pandemic, this COVID-19, and then all, as we shared earlier, the, the multiple experiences of racism, oppression, police brutality, you know, government systems, the list kind of goes on. Um, it, has caused us, uh, it has caused a silence. You know, we've been forced to kind of look at ourselves. We've been forced to be home. Um, if you already had some symptoms of depression and anxiety and some mood disorder and the list goes on, the pandemic complicated all that. 
You know, if you if you were connected to resources that stabilized your mood and like we're going to join to the gym and going for a run and going camping, I mean, the list kind of goes on. That's been cut off, you know. So it has been we have been silenced. And so if you're who's ever listening, um, not everyone works in this field, I would say that it is time to learn how to mobilize love. And you have to allow love to speak to you, to reach out, as Michael said, to the people that, that's in your circle. So if, if it's your neighbors, it's your cousins, it's your uncles, you know, you have to show up and be fully present and ask questions. How can I, how can I be supported to you during this time? What do you need? Um, use that cash app, mm -hmm. use Venmo, use Zelle, you know, just say, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to buy you some gas. I want to send you some money for some eggs. Just, just something to say, mm -hmm. I'm here, and we are only responsible, or we can be responsive to the people that, that are in our, in our circle. Right. And so normally what we do towards the end of, or, or the close of our kind of woke moments discussion, I think we've had a very rich one today, and I think we would continue to go on and discuss what's happening with black suicide currently right now its impacts the interventions because it's going to look quite differently especially for our black communities when we um talk about black suicide especially when we're thinking about to how are we going to navigate um, during this time of uncertainty how are we going to get folks connected to mental health resources or mental well-being resources so that they develop some of the protective factors or the fortitude to deal with the life stressors that are happening to support them. You know, I think it's critically important for us to talk, I mean, to mention that, you know, although um, one may not be able to connect physically, but there are, there are some um, mobile apps that are out there right now that can assist one with navigating and, and, and accessing support um, for individuals. And these apps are specifically Black-based. Um, so one of the most popular ones that I, I can say that I'm most familiar with is the Safe Place and Tally. And so they're, they're quite a few more and, and we'll be sure to, to post those on um, the Woke Moments podcast. But I want our guests to share with them, with our audience, you know, out of everything that we discussed today about black suicide, what is your woke moment that you want to share with our audience? And when we say woke moment, we normally start with my woke moment is, or my woke moments are, or our woke moment is, or our woke moments are, what is your woke moment that you want to leave for our audience? Gail, let's start with you first. Okay. <laughs> all right. But first of all, Ms. Cutter, this has been great. It's been fantastic. And I know we could have part three, part two, part three, part four, part five, right. you know, on this topic, right? <laughs> Can't cover everything in an hour. But um, so if there's any Sanctuary of Hope staff that's listening, please indulge me because I had a little moment all week 
and I shared it with the staff earlier this week. And this is what's been on my heart um, all week. I, I sat in a study group um, through CAM for Dr. King holiday on this past Monday. And it was the first time I listened to his entire speech, the last speech, um, I've been to the mountaintop. And it was a study group, we analyzed his speech and it was one thing that he said that stayed with me and I know it will still be forever. And he said, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. So my woke moment is working with this population and working in mental health. My woke moment is I have to continue to be courageous and being vulnerable and showing up for people. There are risks involved. I have to take care of myself in the process, but it is dangerous, but it's, it is so worth it to show up and be fully available for youth, for adults, for our seniors. And it, it requires that. It requires that we be unselfish. So that's my vote moment. Candy? Janet, again, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And Gail and Michael, fabulous. Um, so I've had a couple of woke moments. Just in the last week, I attended a um, online magic show. And the magician was showing sleight of cards, but he was talking about some things. And so he said this, so I have two woke moments. And he said, what would you do if the world failed to see you? Mm -hmm. And wow. so that's what I think a lot of people are dealing with. The, the world is failing to see them. And then I had to think about why is the world failing to see them? And I saw this post, it was on Instagram. I don't know who wrote it. I'm not taking credit for it, but people who were raised on love see the world differently from people who were raised on survival. Mm. So we have to get out of our own way, stop judging people, stop assuming, and understand that there's factors that we have no idea about. We can no longer shame or blame or even accuse. We have to just simply be and let other people be and see how we can best support them. Mm -hmm. Mike? Yes, thank you. Um, well, my woke moment or more of a consciousness was occurred yesterday. My daughter um, is a graduate student at Howard and, um, mm -hmm. and she's working on a PhD in, in physical therapy, kinesiology, um, sports medicine. Of course, you know, I, I was hoping she'd follow in my footsteps in social work, but um, she, you know, we talk, you know, text daily, and she had mentioned to me that her and a, a group of, of her, her cohort and some first-year law students at Howard got together to do some um, mini benevolence in Southeast and Anacostia. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow. I said, is, uh, is it for a... Uh, uh, extra credit or something no dad it's 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 servanthood it's the right thing to do what you taught me and you know what it is is for all those parents i didn't say a word i said okay and and I, that 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 woke moment meant that no matter what 
they're always watching, especially children, especially your own children. And you have to, even adults, when you when we put ourselves in this position, it's 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 you know, there's no other high role priesthood. We can talk about the order of Melchizedek, but I was in the seminary. And the reality is we're not talking about being perfect, we're talking about being righteous and doing the work. But you have to have a certain standard that sets you sets you apart, or you'll never be in a position where you can really do some good. Your credibility takes place. I'm not saying people not making mistakes. I'm saying it's so vital when it comes to the subject matter we're talking about in terms of suicide. Because probably the reason why the person hasn't responded because everyone else before you has let them down or they they weren't as real as the, old, the young folks say they were fake or phony or whatever. So that, that was my woke woman. It's just, you know, you know, she, she, I mean, it's just, okay. And, and then I said, yeah, you know what? Nobody's ever going to tell you, uh, uh, you know, what you, you're doing and not doing as an adult. But what, what impacts me is those clients and the families I kept together, I see in the streets or in other places saying, thank you, Mr. Gwynn. And I totally forgot what I've ever done. But the reality is that it has an impact. It's, it's, it's powerful, it's useful, and it's relevant. So, you know, it's just that there's always a work to do. And I'm, I'm just proud that, that the credit designated me uh, as part of that number. And I'm just glad that we were able to kind of have an exchange uh, today. And, and thanks again, Janet. Appreciate you. Great. And thank you. And my, my closing woke moment is for our audience is it's okay to ask and seek, seek help for uh, mental health or mental wellness as it relates to suicide, as it relates to depression, as it relates to trauma. Just know that you have a beloved community um, among you who care about you, who see you, who are there for you, and, and that those resources do exist and that you do have folks um, within the community, within this nation who are championing this work around increasing um, racial equity and inclusiveness in the mental health arena around um, black health issues. And so, just know that again, um, you're worth it and we appreciate you. And so I invite all of you, um, I, wanna, I wanna say thank you to everyone who, who listened in, whether you're on Facebook or you're watching directly from Sanctuary of Hope's website. Um, um, if you're watching from Sanctuary of Hope's website, um, I, I invite you to even learn more about Sanctuary of Hope by visiting www.thesoh.org. But also, again, we are going to be posting um, some additional information and resources um, associated with our topic for today. Thank you again, guests, for joining us for our Woke Moments podcast. And I wish everyone a happy, blessed evening. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to Woke Moment. For more information about our organization, please visit thesoh.org. Subscribe to us for a woke moment wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore SOH underscore LA and on Facebook and Instagram at Sanctuary of Hope LA. Wake up!